We're in Romans 10 this morning. If you need a Bible, raise a hand, wave it around. If you need a Bible to take home, let us know that as well. If, if this is the only place that you hold a Bible in your hand, we really want to fix that. Because you want to be partaking of the Word every day. Romans 10. Someone asked me this week, what are you thinking about? What, do you, what goes through your head? What, what do you keep in mind when you're putting a Sunday message together? And, and my first answer was, well, I hope I'm praying more than I'm thinking. <laughs> but one of the things that I do try to keep in mind is, is something that John Corson passed on to me a long time ago. John Corson, uh, OG Calvary Chapel pastor. Speaking of which, rabbit trail for a moment, I still haven't seen Jesus' Revolution. <laughs> I'm a bad Calvary pastor. <laughs> I, life and health and all the things got in the way. People, but, but people that I know who have seen it, who were there, who lived it, who were there for the events depicted in the movie, I have been overwhelmingly positive about it. There are some nits to pick. As I said last week, what I suspected is true. Kay is, is badly misrepresented in the film. She's the one who had the heart for the hippies, and, and, and she was the one who had to persuade Chuck to, to get on board. Without, without Kay, it's, it's hard to know if there would have been a Calvary movement, because anyway, enough, enough about that. Um, the Word of God is, is not emphasized enough, uh, according to people who, who have seen the movie. Um, because because the, the movie represents, for, for understandable dramatic purposes, that, that Calvary was dying and, and Chuck was despairing, and it wasn't until Lonnie came along and Nitro met glycerin and, and, and things really exploded. And it's, and it's true, there was undeniable Jesus chemistry between the two. But the reality is that by that time, by 1968, Calvary was already growing and revival was already underway because Chuck had begun teaching verse by verse. And, and so, so Calvary wasn't languishing when Lonnie came along. He just, he just was used of God to take things to the next level. The other thing that, that, that people have called out is the movie really only tells the story of the beginning of the Calvary movement and, and really only the beginning through the eyes of Greg Laurie. And that, that, that one I find easiest to forgive because if you're going to tell a story, you tell a story because to talk about everything is to talk about nothing, which is also something I try to keep in mind on Sunday. There are some great resources out there if, if you want to pick up where the movie leaves off. There's some great stuff written about the Jesus movement. Um, and I'm going to try to post some of it online. A lot of it is free at this point. Um, so I'm going to try to put it on the Facebook page and send it out through Simple Church. Um, a book you really should read, if the, if the movie is what your interest, is a book called The Reproducers, written in 1972. So it's a first-person, first-hand account of the Jesus movement while it was underway. Another book um, that's worth reading is Harvest. If you were intrigued by Greg's testimony and the miraculous things that God did in Greg Laurie's life, Harvest tells the story not only of Pastor Greg, but of a lot of the other guys who were, who were part of the early Calvary movement, some of the first guys that Chuck uh, trained up and sent out. And again, I'll, I'll try to post links. But one of those guys, let's, let's come back to where we left, was John Corson. <laughs> That, that, that left Calvary and went and planted a work in Oregon. And he was very, has been very influential on a lot of younger pastors, myself included. And one of the things that John would tell us at every conference, every time he had an opportunity to speak to pastors, he would say, Pastor, be sure to give the people milk and meat and manna. Milk for new believers to grow on, meat for mature believers to chew on, and manna, the daily bread, the bread of life, the gospel for all of us to reflect on and be refreshed by and rejoice in. And I try to do that. I'm trying to, I try to be intentional about that, especially the manna part. The meat part comes easy, you might have noticed. <laughs> And, 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 and I try to be intentional about not neglecting the milk, but it's so, so important in our daily walk 
and in our weekly gatherings that we include the manna, the gospel. And I try to do that in some way, shape, or form every Sunday. And it looks different on different weeks. Some weeks the gospel is a major point. It's a centerpiece, and it's, and it's a you know, concrete, detailed presentation. Other weeks, I, I might present it more succinctly. It, it might get folded into the narrative of the, of the message, especially if the worship team has, has clearly conveyed the gospel in their part of the service. Some weeks, I'll, some weeks I'll carve out five or ten minutes, sometimes at the end of the message, sometimes in the middle of the message, to say, we're sinners. We were rebellious criminals, and our crimes separated us from the God who created us. We, we rebelled against God. We made ourselves unholy. We broke off relationship with a holy God. And we would have stayed that way apart from God forever if God hadn't come after us. If God hadn't sent Jesus to die for us. To die for us? Yeah, the wages of sin is death. Our rebellion against an eternal God warrants eternal death. And that's what was waiting for us, except God in his mercy came up with a way to satisfy his justice and minister forgiveness. He sent Jesus to die in our place. He died on the cross. He bore the wrath. He received the justice for all of the sins that all of us have ever committed. So with God's justice satisfied, his mercy could be displayed. And his mercy is available for anyone who says, yeah, I want to trade places with Jesus. I want to accept his death as payment for my sin. Jesus, take my sin and give me the righteousness that you're offering. Because it's the only way we can be made righteous. It's the only way we can stand before God and be welcomed to heaven. Some days I'll do the long form. Other days, I might just say it comes down to whether you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, that he died for your sin. And if you want to be forgiven, if you want to know God, if you want to go to heaven, that's what you have to decide about. Sometimes I do the short form. And that short form that I just shared is, is really, it's essentially Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, which is part of our text this morning. Starting in verse 8, the word of faith which we preach, Paul says, is that if you confess from your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's a decent, succinct articulation of the gospel. It's one I happen to like. It's, there are others that are just as good. Others have, uh, other people have ones that they like. Lots of people go John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Nothing wrong with that. Some people stand on John 14.6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Also very good. Acts 4.12. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. No other name but the name Jesus. I like that. And I like 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. They're all good. The problem with any of them, though, the problem with all of them, is that when you take a verse or two and ask it to stand alone, there's a temptation to ask it to say more than it's saying, to do more than it's meant to do. When you take a verse and ask it to stand alone, there's a temptation to read into it, to impute meaning to it, to torque it off its axis and try to get it to confess things that the author never intended and the Holy Spirit never meant. Never read one Bible verse. We remind ourselves of that, right? Read above, read below to get the context because a verse without context is often a pretext to a proof text. A verse without context is often, not always, but often, taken out of context to try to prove, proven quotes, someone's favorite pet doctrine. We consider context. We compare scripture with scripture so that we don't allow ourselves to, 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 to take a verse and understand it to mean something other than God intends. And, and here's the thing. The temptation to twist scripture, 
the temptation to read into a verse becomes greater and greater the closer and closer we get to the gospel. People use Romans 10 verse 9 because it's a succinct expression of the gospel. People take that, they pull it out, they let it stand alone, and they try to use it to prove many things. But what does Paul mean when he says, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? What does Paul mean? What does the Holy Spirit mean? That's our study this morning. And Lord, we know we want to get this right, but, but how much more do you want us to get this right? Because you put your word above your name. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and, 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 and draw us into a right understanding of your word and your heart? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse without context, often a pretext for a proof text. Let's get some context. Romans 10, verse 1, Paul's talking about Israel. He's been talking about Israel. He's not done talking about Israel. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel, that they might be saved. If you think back to chapter 9, Paul's been saying some tough things about Israel. Israel's chasing righteousness in the law, and they're coming up short. The Gentiles, they're cooking, though. They've chosen righteousness in Christ Jesus. And they're coming out justified, unashamed, children of God. That's what Paul just got done saying at the end of chapter 9. To Paul's fellow Jews, especially those who weren't believers, that's blasphemy. Israel has fallen short of righteousness while filthy Gentiles have obtained it? Paul, that's disgusting. And Paul, ever mindful of how his readers are going to respond, you know, the, here's what you're going to say, and here's what I have to say about what you're going to say, pauses after what he said in chapter 9. He pauses here in verse 1 to say, no, I don't hate Israel. I know that's what you're thinking, but it's really not true. Don't hate Israel, haven't given up on Israel. In fact, my deepest desire is that Israel would be saved. But, he continues in verse 2, facts are facts. Facts are facts, and we can't ignore facts, for I bear them witness that they... Israel, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Israel is zealous, Paul grants them that. Zealous for tithes, sacrifices, offerings, feasts, all the observances of Judaism required under the law, they're all about it. They're zealous for it. But their zealousness is misplaced, he's saying. They're passionate, but passionate about all the wrong stuff. Because they're not supposed to be zealous for the law anymore. They're supposed to be zealous for... Jesus. And that's the problem, verse 3. Being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Israel keeps trying to earn righteousness, keeps trying to prove their own righteousness, demonstrate how righteous they are under the law. When they long since should have realized it was never going to work. The purpose of the law was to prove can't keep the law. No one can be perfectly holy all the time. Never envy, never lust, never gossip, never slander, never rob, never cheat, never waste. No. No. The purpose of the law was to prove we can't keep the law. The purpose of the law was to demonstrate we need a Savior. And Jesus, Paul says in verse 4, Jesus is that Savior that the law has been telling us we need. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law because he paid the penalty for the law. He paid the penalty for each of us so the law no longer has a claim on us. That's the sense in which the law ends with Jesus. Wages of sin are death. Our sin under the law warrants the death penalty. We're all guilty. We're all deserving of death a thousand times over. What am I saying? Thousands and thousands and thousands of times over, right? I've broken the law five or six times this morning. I've lost count, and I haven't even really gotten started yet. We're all guilty and deserving of death, but Jesus died in our place. He died our death. He paid for our sin, ours and everyone who calls on his name. And it's the only way any of us are saved. It's the only way any of us can be saved. It's the only way anybody escapes the penalty of the law. It's the only way anyone escapes hell. 
For Moses, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is out for the law. And he, and he says this about it. The man who does those things shall live by them. That's the other option, Paul says. If you want to get to heaven, one way is Jesus. The other way is keep the law and keep it perfectly. Keep the law perfectly, you can escape hell. Don't sin ever. Don't break the law ever. Yeah, that's the other way to eternal life. And it's the way Israel keeps trying. Which, Paul is telling us, is insane. Because what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Israel keeps trying to achieve, attain, obtain righteousness on the basis of the law, and they've never managed to do it. No one has except Jesus. Jesus kept the law perfectly, which is what qualified him to stand in our place. Keeping the law perfectly qualified him to be a substitute because he was a lamb without spot or blemish, a perfect sacrifice. He had no sin of his own to die for which made him able to die for ours, qualified to die in our place. But, but Jesus is the exception that proves the rule, isn't he? The fact that he kept the law perfectly just underscores the fact no one else ever has, which means you and I are in trouble apart from Jesus. Everyone is in trouble apart from Jesus because all of us are guilty. We're criminals, we're lawbreakers, we're sinners, we're sentenced to eternal death, we're... We're not just in big trouble, we are in the biggest trouble apart from Jesus. We have no hope. Fortunately, Paul says, verse 6, we have Jesus. We don't have to worry about apart from Jesus, we have Jesus. If we want him. Verse 6, Jesus has given us an alternative to the law. Verse 6, Jesus is an alternative. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Let's untangle this. The righteousness of faith, the righteousness born of faith, the righteousness that comes from faith says it's finished because Jesus finished it. Verse 4, he ended it. Our debt is paid in full. Jesus paid it. What does that mean? It means we don't have to climb up into heaven and try to bring a Savior down. He's already come. And we don't have to dig down, dive deep into the grave to try to bring a Savior up from the dead. He's risen. Paul's point, this is important, his whole point in our passage this morning is that we don't have to do anything to be saved. And he says that in verse 8. What does it say, he asks? But what does the word of righteousness say? That's the it that's being referred to in verse 8. That's the it refers back to the word of righteousness in verse 6, what does the word of righteousness say about how we're saved? How are we saved? Paul is asking. The word is near, in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith that we preach. You don't have to do anything. Righteousness is right there. Just have to lay hold of it. Just have to lay hold of him. Just have to, verse 9, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And what's critical here, what's absolutely vital, to see everything Paul is saying is context. I know that shocks you given that's how I started the message. But, but, but see this, Paul is contrasting the doing of Israel under the law trying frantically to keep the law, every yacht and tittle, tithing on the mint and the cumin, doing all they can to try to keep the law and failing. He's contrasting that with the Gentiles who are finding the end of the law in Jesus, being saved from the penalty of the law by Jesus, not by doing, but by believing. By believing. Paul's super clear about this and incredibly emphatic and it comes across even more clearly if we look again at verses 6, 7, and 8 in their original context. Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy 30. Turn with me there. Keep a finger in Romans 10. We're coming back. 
but go all the way to the left of the first five books of the Bible and look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Because it turns out Paul's not quoting complete verses. The Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to do a little bit of editing for the sake of making a point. And if we look at Deuteronomy 30, the point that the Holy Spirit is making jumps off the page. Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 11. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you shall say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we might hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us, that we might hear it and do it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Do you notice the difference? It jumps out at us, right? In Deuteronomy, the emphasis is on the law and the things we do to keep the law. The emphasis on, on doing. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. You know that. God's saying through Moses, do this stuff and live. Do this if you want to live. Here's the law, verse 11, Deuteronomy 30, 11. Here's the law. I've brought it to you. You don't have to go to heaven to look for it, verse 12. You don't have to cross the sea to, to bring it back, verse 13. You have it. I gave it to Moses. He brought it to you. All you need to do, verse 10, is turn to the Lord with all of your heart and soul and do it. All that's left is obey it. You've got the law. Obey it if you want to live. Do it. I'll leave the passage on the screen so you can turn back to Romans 10 and compare the two. Paul's presenting a parallel. God brought the law close through Moses so Israel would be without excuse. You can't say you didn't know what to do. I told you what to do. I laid it all out for Moses. Moses gave it to you. You have the law. You don't have to search for it. So just do it. Obey it and live. Except no one ever could. So Paul's contrasting the law with the gospel, saying God brought Jesus close. He brought the law close. Now he brought Jesus close. And Jesus came teaching and healing and doing miracles so we would be without excuse, so we would recognize him as the Messiah, so that we could believe on him and live. Over here, just do it. Over here, believe it. Believe him. And he's saying, and the Gentiles are. And you shouldn't get mad at him about that because you had every opportunity. We don't need to search for a Savior is the point. We have a Savior. God brought him close. All we need to do is obey the gospel and live. What's the gospel? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. You'll live. God's made a way of salvation. He's made a way for us to be saved that doesn't set aside the law but fulfills the law. Jesus died in our place. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And whoever believes on him, Romans 10, 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. I'm, I'm dwelling on this. I'm camping out here because it's so important we understand in context, in context what Paul is saying. That way we'll be able to recognize and hopefully refute anyone's attempt to distort it or pervert it or twist it or torture it. That way we'll, try to, we'll be able to recognize when somebody tries to introduce a whole new meaning that Paul and the Holy Spirit never intended in these words. Because people do. I know that shocks you. But people twist scripture. And in the time that we've got left, I want to give you four examples of how people twist this scripture in particular. How people torture Romans 10.9 and try to get it to confess to something that it never really was intended to say. Four ways that people take Romans 10.9 out of context and use it to proof text their favorite pet doctrines. Number one, salvation requires public confession. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't, but people believe it. Everyone Jesus called, he called publicly. If you want to be saved, you have to declare him publicly. If in Jesus you trust, speak of him, you must. I didn't make that up, that's something that people say. Like most errors of doctrine, this one has some truth in it. Jesus did tell us to speak of him, to declare the gospel, to proclaim our faith in him. Baptism is an easy example. 
That's the whole purpose of baptism, to declare publicly our faith in Jesus. The Great Commission is another one. We're called to be witnesses. We're called to preach the gospel to every living creature. We're called to speak of our faith and tell people about Jesus. I was talking to somebody this week, and we were talking about relational evangelism. And, and relational evangelism is good, and it has its place, but we have to understand no one ever got saved because we were nice to them. That might have opened the door, but eventually they had to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But all of that, all of that, speaking of Jesus, declaring Jesus, sharing the gospel, that's not a condition of salvation. That's a result of salvation. How do we know? Because Scripture tells us again and again we're saved by grace through faith. It's Paul's whole point. It's not about doing. It's about believing. And, and adding confession to the finished work of Jesus Christ would be just that. Adding. If you add something to something that's finished, then either it wasn't finished in the first place, or we've broken it. Jesus said it was finished. The second to last thing he said on the cross, to Telestai, it is finished. So we know the cross plus anything is nothing. The cross plus nothing well, that's everything. In reality, I, I think the people who go here are even further off than that. I don't think that Paul was necessarily talking about a public proclamation of the gospel before or after salvation. I read this, and, and it seems to me he's more likely talking about a conversation that he has with God at the moment of salvation. Confession unto the Lord. I need you. That's what it was for me. I came to Christ alone on the side of Interstate 94 during a snowstorm. And when I got done saying, God, I need you, I knew I was changed. I knew I'd been saved. I knew the Holy Spirit had come to live in me. I knew that my life would be different forever. And I know a lot of you have had similar experiences. I, I, I think when he says confess, it's a conversation between us and God. But, but, but even if I'm wrong, even if I'm wrong and Paul is talking about bearing witness to others, testifying to others that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you can't take a passage that is all about the superiority of believing, believing in Jesus for salvation, versus doing what the law requires. You can't take a passage that's all about believing and read it as, as meaning we have to do something in addition to believing. It contradicts the whole flow. It contradicts the whole heart of what Paul is saying. If we believe, we will tell people. That's, that's how things work. Good news is meant to be shared. You know when someone finds a new restaurant that they like or a new diet that works, a new favorite band that they've got on repeat, how do you know? They'll tell you. How do you know when one of your friends becomes a vegetarian? They tell you. Except for Rob. He likes to keep it on the down low. <laughs> but, but how do you know someone has found faith in Jesus? They'll tell you. Because faith produces the work. Fruit follows faith. And that makes sense. Fruit doesn't produce. We, we, we don't bear fruit so we can abide in the vine. Jesus says, abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit. Fruit doesn't produce faith. Faith produces fruit. Let's keep going. Romans 10.9 does not teach that public confession is required for salvation. Romans 10.9 does not teach lordship salvation. You need to submit to Jesus as Lord to be saved. You need to give him full control over every aspect of your life. You, never, you need to surrender absolutely. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And if he's not Lord at all, well, then you're not saved. People who go down this road make the same mistake as the people who go down the public confession road. They confuse the outcome of salvation with the means of salvation. Total surrender to God should be the outcome of our salvation. The first thing Jesus said to the disciples is, follow me, and he never stopped saying it. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Take up your cross, follow me. 
We're not called to just believe in Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus. And you can't tell me Scripture says anything different. To say, well, you know, he's, he's a believer in Jesus, but he's not really a follower. It, that's a false distinction. What you're really saying is he's not a very good follower. You've got obedient followers and you've got disobedient followers, but we're all called to be followers. Every believer should be a Christ follower. Following, following and pursuing sanctification, following and pursuing surrender, it's not optional. And it's a very modern invention that we can treat it that way, that, that it's optional like four-wheel drive or optional V6 or optional tow package. That's not found anywhere in Scripture. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. That's God's call on every single believer's life. Every believer is called to surrender all to the lordship of Jesus and give him absolute authority over all of our lives, our work, our home, our family, our school, our friendship, our hobbies, our media, our free time, our screen time. But it's not a condition of salvation. It's a product of salvation. Following Jesus to the cross is a condition of salvation. Following him from the cross I said that backwards. Following Jesus to the cross is a condition of salvation. Following him from the cross is a product of salvation. Rewards are a product of salvation. Every reward we hope to enjoy in eternity is a function of how well, how faithfully we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But eternity itself depends only on whether we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and accept his death as penalty, as payment for our sin. It has to be true. Look again at verse 11. Let's do with verse 11 what we did with 6, 7, and 8. Let's look at it in the original context. Paul says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. He's quoting from Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Who is he talking about? Jesus. Whoever believes on him will not act hastily, will not be afraid, in other words, will not be frantic, worried if they've got it right. Whoever believes on him will rest, knowing they will not be put to shame. We're not saved by good works, period. We're saved for good works, exclamation point. And the best good work, the, the, the only good work, if you get right down to it, is obedience. Surrender, submission, call it whatever you want. But that's always a work in progress, isn't it? Any, anybody gotten to the point of perfect surrender? Absolute obedience? No one ever follows Jesus perfectly because even empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're still dealing with our sin nature. We're still inhabiting these, correct, these corrupt bodies. So you can't make it a condition of salvation when no one gets it right. <laughs> but what if, we, what, if, what if we give up? What if we stop fighting? What if we, what if we don't surrender? What if we say, okay, Jesus is my Savior, but we don't accept him as Lord. I think the parable of the four soils speaks to this. We've been there like the last three weeks. I don't know why the Lord keeps bringing us back to Matthew 13. The seed is the word of God. The soil is the heart. There's seed by the wayside that bounces off the hard heart. There's seed on the stony place where someone stumbles before they really get started. There's seed on the thorny place where someone hears the word but the growth gets choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, Matthew 13. And what happens next? Jesus says they will be unfruitful. Not lost, unfruitful, unproductive, unrewarded, but not unsaved. Still tracking? Okay, if one, or, if, if one and two make sense, three will make sense. If public confession is not a requirement of salvation, if following 
Jesus, if lordship is not a condition of salvation, you can't make repentance a condition of salvation either. That's number three. This one might get some hackles up. The first two you might not even have even encountered. That might be, wow, people believe that? Okay, that's weird. <laughs> but, but this one, if you followed Christ any length of time, you probably have run into this debate. The idea that do you need to repent of your sin and walk away from your sin, your sins of choice, your sinful habits, your sinful lifestyle, so that you can be saved? Do you need to demonstrate repentance so that God can forgive you? First instinct is to say, well, that can't be true because the first two weren't true. That can't be right because that sounds a lot like salvation by works. And you're right, it is. If you have to do something or stop doing something in order to be saved, then you're not saved by grace anymore. You're saved by works. You're not saved by believing, which is Paul's whole point. You're, you're back under the law having to do things. So we know that's wrong. But this gets a little muddy. Because there are verses in Scripture that put repentance and salvation not even side by side, but intertwined. Unless you repent, you will perish, Jesus says in Luke 13. Unless you repent, you will perish. Men everywhere should repent and be saved, Paul says in Acts 17.30. Repent and be saved. And there are other verses as well. They're not, they're not hard to find. What do we do with that? Paul, Paul here in Romans 10 is telling us that salvation is about believing, not doing that it's after salvation, after we've been regenerated, after the Holy Spirit has come to live in us, then we can turn from our sin. How do we make sense of this contradiction? Paul sounds like he's saying one thing here and another thing in, in Acts. Jesus says, believe on me and you will not perish. But you're saying in Luke, he says, if you don't repent, you will perish? How do we untangle the knot? It's actually not hard. What Jesus and Paul and others are saying is not we need to repent of our sins in order to be saved. We don't have to repent of our lying, cheating, stealing, lusting, envying, gossiping, wasting, all the rest. We need to repent of our sin. What's our sin? Our sin that leads to all the other sins, I heard it, unbelief. Not believing in Jesus, not trusting his death, not thinking that we need Jesus, thinking that we've got all we need. We are all we need. I'll stand before God in my righteousness. I'm better than Hitler. He can't keep me out of heaven. That's the sin we need to repent of. And repent, you know this, repent means to turn from something, to change our mind about something. And it's in that sense that the verses about repentance and salvation together make perfect sense because we're turning from this, this path that we're on of not believing, not trusting, not relying, and we're saying, no, I, I need to trust, I need to believe, I need to rely. We need to change our mind about Jesus we need to repent of our wrong thinking about sin and self in relation to Jesus. And that's part and parcel of what it is to accept Jesus. See, repentance and faith, repentance and believing are two sides of the same coin. In order to be saved by Jesus, we first have to recognize our need for Jesus. We have to admit our sin has separated us from God and the only remedy is Jesus. So we have to repent. We have to change our mind about whatever's keeping us from Jesus. Change our mind about whatever we're trusting in instead of Jesus and put our faith in him alone. When we've done that, repentance and faith come together. It's part of the same action. Turning away from self, turning toward Jesus. Repentance and faith, they come together, but it, it, it's worth saying they have to come together. They must come together. At some point this morning, you, you, you might have sort of extrapolated this road of them on and saying, good grief, Patrick thinks that anyone who says Jesus is saved loud enough gets to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. Jesus, save me. Believe there was a guy named, heaven, uh, named Jesus. Say his name, win a prize, go to heaven. No, I don't believe that. Some people do believe that. And once again, Romans 10.9 is one of the verses that they quote in support of that. Believe in a person named Jesus, believe in your heart, say his name loud, confess with your mouth, and you're saved. 
It's as simple as that. It is as simple as that, but that's not the that that's simple. <laughs> Paul is teaching salvation by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But he's not teaching easy believism. When he says believe on the Lord Jesus, we said a couple weeks ago, he means believe into the Lord Jesus. Not, 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 not believe in the fact of Jesus. I, don't know, I, I believe that Jesus was real, that he lived. No, believe in the ministry of Jesus, that he died, and he died for our sin, and he rose again in proof that the, that the death was acceptable. Believe in the ministry of Jesus. Believe that we needed that ministry, that we couldn't save ourselves, that we were drowning and crying out, help me, Jesus, you're the only way. That's the repentance we're talking about. And this is point number four of ways that people misuse Romans 10.9. It's not about cleaning up our lives so that we can come to Christ. It's coming to Christ with the expectation he's going to clean up our lives. And we're going to cooperate with him. See, repentance in that sense, not repenting of sins before we come to Jesus, but being willing to repent of sins, having come to Jesus, that's absolutely biblical. Thinking we can come to Christ without changing our mind about sin is not. It's an important distinction because we all know people who've raised their hands when someone says, do you want to receive Jesus into your heart? We all know people who have gone forward at crusades or concerts, people who have prayed the sinner's prayer, who have no repentance. They might have changed their mind about Jesus, but they didn't change their mind about sin or about themselves. They tried to just add Jesus into their lives already in progress. And that never, ever works. God won't let it work. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel says repent. Turn away from self, turn away from sin, turn to God. Rebuild on God, on Jesus, and bear fruit that gives glory to Jesus, that honors Jesus. If your belief in Jesus hasn't changed you, you don't believe in Jesus. There are people who raise their hands, walk forward, come forward, pray prayers without change. I, I think they're the stony soil of Matthew 13, of the parable of the soils. They like the idea of Jesus, and they show a lot of initial enthusiasm around Jesus. They tell people, I've decided to follow Jesus. And then, then they turn back. <laughs> They're all about Jesus until Jesus says, okay, but you have, to, you have to walk away from sin. They're all about Jesus until Jesus says, okay, but follow me out of the world. They're all about Jesus until Jesus says, okay, but it's time to die to self. At which point they go back to what they were doing, being the person that they were being, or they go on looking for the next thing to try. The thing that will let them have sin in heaven too. The thing that will let them call on God while remaining their own God. And the thing that will leave them dying apart from God. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Proof that his death was sufficient is the only way for us to be saved. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and choose him while rejecting everything else. Everything not him as a means of salvation. When I said I do to Anne, I said I don't to all of the other ladies. When we said, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, we said, and nothing else is. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. That's the gospel. Do you believe it? Have you accepted it? Trusted it? Believed into it? Do you share it? If the answer to any of those questions is no, my next question is going to be, why not? I'm not asking that in a snotty way. I'm genuinely interested. What part of the gospel do you disagree with? Promise I'm not being snarky. I, I really would like to have that conversation. I think a lot of people in this room would be willing to have that conversation. Because if you think about it, if you're right and the gospel isn't good news, I'm wasting my time and everybody else's time here. 
That's rude. If the gospel is just a bunch of wishful thinking, silly ideas promoting the false hope of an invisible God who doesn't really exist, please show me that so we can all go home. If we're all here telling each other myths and nonsense, pretty cruel if you can prove it's wrong. Pretty cruel to let us go on chasing our fairy tales. But if by some chance, by some miracle, we're right, and the Bible is right, and the gospel is true, and Jesus died for your sin, and where you spend eternity depends on what you decide about that, then I can't stop until someone proves that I've got it wrong. You're going to live forever. We all are. Where you live, the quality of life in the afterlife depends on whose righteousness you intend to claim before God. Are you going to say, I'm good enough for heaven? Come on, you know you. Or are you going to say, I'm not good enough for heaven? No way. Except for Jesus. I might be wasting my life. So I'm willing to listen to anyone who can give me a reason why this whole Jesus thing is wrong. Because I don't want to waste my life. But you're risking your eternity. So unless... Until you convince me I'm wrong, I'm going to keep asking in love what part doesn't make sense. What facts do you not accept? What evidence do you reject? Because that's what it comes down to, facts and evidence. Jesus died for your sin, rose again to prove his death paid for your sin, to prove the trade was complete. He took all of your sin, gave you all of his righteousness. I'm saying, my position, is that that's fact, not opinion. That's a truth claim that I believe is well supported by evidence. You can agree or disagree. You can accept it or argue it. What you can't do is say, well, that's just your opinion. Because it isn't. It's a truth claim. You can't say, well, that's your opinion. And you can't say, well, it doesn't feel right. I'm not sure I can relate to that. I'm not sure I vibe with that. I'm not sure that's how I want to live. This isn't about opinions or feelings. It's about facts. I'm not saying feelings don't matter. Your feelings tell you the world is rough and they're right. Your feelings tell you that you've been beaten up and hurt and disappointed by the world and by the people in the world, and they're right. Your feelings might even tell you, I don't trust Christians because some of the people who have hurt me have been church people. And I'm afraid to, to hope again. Okay, that makes sense. That's fair. But all of that is why you need Jesus. Not the world, not the people in the world, not even church people, but Jesus. <laughs> feelings are real, but feelings don't answer questions, they ask questions. Feelings don't give us an answer, they bring us to a question, and the question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? I'm not sure I agree with what you're saying. I'm not sure that's in the Bible. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. If you're saying, okay, I'm not sure. This is new, this is confusing. I don't think I have enough information to make a choice. Different people have said different things to me. I'm not sure what to believe. That's progress. What are you going to do next? What are you doing to find out, to, to get the information that you need to, to decide? What are you reading? Who are you talking to? Who are you listening to? How are you investigating so that you can make a decision about this truth claim? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. True or not? Real or nonsense? What are you doing to put yourself in a position to decide? I hope if you haven't made up your mind about Jesus, you'll talk to me or someone before you leave today before you leave this room. Maybe the person sitting next to you. I'm going to be sitting up here. Other pastors and elders and some of our wives are going to post up in the corners of the room. We don't want to beat you up. Pressure you. Come on, if, if, if we try to pressure you, you got to decide, you got to decide now. Choose! Okay, all we're going to do is, is, is get you running out the door faster. <laughs> what we want to do is give you the information that you need to make a decision.
The decision's yours. If you haven't made up your mind about Jesus, please talk to someone. And if you have made up your mind about Jesus, would you decide before you leave you're going to talk to people this week about him? Not so that you can be saved, but because you are saved. Not so you can be saved, but be, so they can be saved. Decide to talk to people about him. And decide right now not to complicate it. Tell them, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And you will be saved and never put to shame. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your word that presents the gospel so clearly, so powerfully. Thank you for the depth of your word that makes the gospel indisputable. But also thank you for the simplicity of your plan. You died that we might live. Father, I pray for any here wrestling, agonizing. I, I, I pray for those here who, who aren't wrestling, who need to be. Father, I pray your spirit would convict, would challenge. Where my words have failed, Lord, would your spirit stir questions, provoke inquiry. And Lord, would you equip your saints to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Lord, keep your hope alive in us. We pray that it would burn brightly. Lead us in the way that we should go, in the conversations we should have. As we live and live out the gospel.
horse evangelism. Bringing people somewhere under false pretenses and then ambushing them with the gospel. I, I think that works counter to the gospel because Jesus is light. In him is no turning, no deception at all. So if we have to get deceptive to introduce people to Jesus, I just think we're doing it wrong. When we do fall fest or, or light the night, we make sure we, we people know walking in from the first entrance, hey, this is a church thing. This is a Jesus thing. And, and, and you're going you're gonna to hear the gospel hopefully six, seven, eight times before you leave because that's just why we're doing it. And we try to be upfront with it. What's my point? Jesus' revolution is an opportunity and, and I'm hearing some wonderful testimonies of people who bring friends to the movie and then have an opportunity to talk about Jesus and the gospel because it's presented in the movie. You do you and, and don't do something that's not authentic for you. And don't say, hey, do you want to go to the movies and people think that they're going to see the latest Marvel picture and, and really it's something. But... but what about this? What about, hey, would you be interested in seeing a movie that's, that's about the, the origin of that crazy bunch of people I go to church with? <laughs> and then see what it provokes. It's, it's just a thought, but I share it because I'm hearing testimonies of, of really wonderful conversations and people coming to the Lord um, because of interactions like that. For your consideration. Let's stand together. Like I said earlier, at the end of this song, I'll be in the corner, other pastors, other elders in the corner. We're here for you guys. We're here to answer questions. We're here to open the Bible and reason together. We're here to provide information you need to make decisions. We're here to pray with you. Where two or three are gathered, right? Prayer faith changes things. So please take advantage of the ministry that begins when this last song ends and continue seeking after that manna every day. We'll do our best to keep it a part of our weekly gathering, but make it part of your daily devotion. Preach the gospel to yourself. We're sinners, separated from God for all eternity until Jesus enters our life, until we believe on him, until we're saved by his blood.